there we go. The second scripture reading for today is from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, speak to us words of life this morning, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may come to know your Son, the Holy One of God. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Do you remember this from a few years ago? On September 6, 2018, Amber Geyer, at the time a Dallas police officer, entered the home of 26-year-old Botham Jean and shot and killed him, claiming that she thought that she was in her own apartment and that he was an intruder. In 2019, she was convicted of his murder, and at her sentencing, something happened that captivated the whole country. Botham's brother, Brant, forgave her. He said, I forgive you, and I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you as a person, and I want what's best for you. And then he asked if he could give her a hug. And if you remember, he got down from the stand. And as they shared a long embrace, the courtroom fell completely silent, except for the sounds of sobbing 
It was an incredibly powerful moment. Our passage for today is something similar. It's the story of a murderer who repents before God. And in this prayer, we see something astounding. We see not only does God forgive this murderer, but he reaches down to the very depths of the problem in his soul and restores the sinner to life. Here's what we'll see in this psalm. As beautiful and as compelling as the story of Brant forgiving Amber is, you and I are invited into an even more compelling, even greater story. A story that has captivated people for thousands of years. Here's what we'll see. This is the main point of this psalm. God restores sinners to worship him. So let's dig into it. I said that this is the prayer of a murderer repenting before God. We know that from the superscript of this psalm. Take a look at what it says. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. You may know the story of David and Bathsheba, but let me just quickly summarize it for us here because it helps us to understand just how far God goes to restore sinners like you and me. So here's what happened. David, the king of Israel, sees this beautiful woman Bathsheba, and he wants her. And so he asks his servants to go and find out who she is. And even though they tell her that she's married, David sleeps with her. And it happens that she gets pregnant. And rather than owning up to his sin, David tries to hide it. The first thing he does is he tries to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come home from battle and to sleep with his wife so that no one will know that this child is David's. And when that doesn't work, David literally has Uriah killed in battle and then takes Bathsheba as his wife. But even then, David didn't repent. It isn't until the prophet Nathan confronts him that he finally confesses and repents of his sin. This psalm here is David's prayer of repentance. And it's significant how this prayer begins. It begins with a plea. Look at verse 1. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Have any of you ever been to a service at an Eastern Orthodox church? Visited Sadat? Great. Uh, so for the rest of you, if you uh, ever do visit someday, you'll be struck, I think, by how often you repeat the same phrase over and over again. You maybe remember Daniel. Uh, you Over and over again throughout the service, you'll repeat, Lord, have mercy. And the reason why is because that's our fundamental posture before God. As sinners before holy God, we have no claim to anything good from him. We deserve only his judgment. And so all we can do is pray, Lord, have mercy. David knows that. He knows that he has sinned horribly against God. And so he begins his prayer, Lord, have mercy. 
But there's something interesting here. Because at the same time, we do have a certain claim to God. David prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That second part is covenantal language. David has confidence in his plea because he knows that God has promised steadfast love to his people. And so on the one hand, we have no claim to anything good from God. And so all we can do is plead, Lord, have mercy. But on the other hand, we do have a claim to God because he has obligated himself to his people. He has promised us steadfast love. And so we pray, Lord, have mercy according to your steadfast love. This is fundamental to the rest of the prayer and fundamental to our entire relationship with God. Here's what we see in this verse. Because God has promised to show steadfast love to his people, we can come boldly before him and plead for his mercy. Not because we deserve it, but because God has promised it. And so this prayer begins with the plea, Lord, have mercy upon me according to your steadfast love. The next part of this prayer is the confession in verses 3 through 6. And there are three things I want you to notice about this section. The first is David's posture. Have you ever experienced a half-hearted apology? Maybe something like, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Or maybe something that tries to shift the blame to the other person. Maybe, I'm sorry, but you dot dot dot. Have you ever given one of those apologies? I know I have. There's none of that in David's confession. Look at his posture in verse 3. He says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You can tell that he's intimately aware of his sin. He doesn't try to ignore it or to make light of it. He's deeply troubled by it. And he's not defensive. He doesn't try to blame someone else for what he did. He says in the second part of verse 4 that God's judgment is right. He knows his sin. He's grieved by it. And then he casts himself on God's mercy. That's the posture of a true confession. In order for us to confess our sins to God, we have to first examine ourselves to know our sin. And sometimes, like for David here, it takes being confronted by the word of God through others before we're truly grieved by our sin. The posture of true confession is to know and be grieved by our sin. The second thing that I want you to notice about David's confession is from the first part of verse 4. He says, Against you, you only, have I sinned. That's interesting, don't you think? I mean, if you murdered someone, would the first thing you think be, against God and God only have I sinned? How can David say that? He says that because he knows that fundamentally, all sin is against God. 
That's not to say that we don't sin against others. We do. But sin is sin first and foremost because it goes against what God commands. So David committing adultery with Bathsheba was sin because God said, do not commit adultery. David having Uriah killed was sin because God said, do not murder. David isn't denying that he sinned against others. He's recognizing that fundamentally he sinned against God. Brant Jean understood this too. Amber murdered his brother, but from whom does he tell her to seek forgiveness? He said, if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. When we sin, fundamentally, we sin against God. The third thing I want you to see about David's confession is in verse 5. Take a look. He prays, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David confesses that the depths of his sin are even greater than his sin with Bathsheba or any other sin. His sin with Bathsheba was just one manifestation of a much deeper problem. The problem extends all the way back to his conception. He was born a sinner. Maybe you've heard this before. It's a helpful way to understand this. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The problem of our sin goes far deeper than any particular sin. The problem is that we're born with a sinful nature. This is what theologians call total depravity. And it's good for us to confess that before God. It's good for us to confess not only our particular sins, but also our sinfulness. We have a sinful nature that needs to be forgiven and restored. So here's where we're at so far in the psalm. We saw the plea, Lord, have mercy. And then we saw the confession, and we looked at three things. We see that the, um, the posture of a true confession is to know and be grieved by our sin. And we saw that sin is fundamentally against God. And then we saw that our problem goes far deeper than any particular sin, or far deeper even than our worst sins. The problem is that we're born with a sinful nature. The next part of this prayer is the request in verses 7 through 12. How many of you in the past couple years had to isolate because of COVID? I finally had to uh, about two months ago. And thankfully for me, it wasn't too bad. But for some of you, especially if you got sick early on in the pandemic, it might have been a horrible experience. Some of you might have been very sick wondering even if this could be the end, and all the while isolated from those you love. If you experience that, then you have a little bit of an idea of what David refers to in verse 7. He says, Purge me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. This language comes from the laws for cleansing lepers in Leviticus 14. 
In David's time, when someone got leprosy, they were declared unclean. And the laws for uncleanness were actually very similar to what we still do today for quarantine. See if this sounds familiar. So if you had leprosy, you had to live outside of the city for at least 14 days until the leprosy was gone. And here's how they social distance. When anyone came near to you, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean. It would have been an awful experience. But if you were healed, this is what the priest would do. He would sacrifice a bird and dip some hyssop, same as what David says, dip some hyssop into the blood of the bird and sprinkle that blood on you seven times. And after that, he would declare you clean. Imagine the relief you'd feel. You'd been isolated from others, fighting this horrible disease, not knowing whether or not you'd make it out alive. And now you're healed, declared clean, and you can finally return to your family and friends. David knew that our sin is like that. Like leprosy, our sin is a disease that brings horrible suffering, makes us unclean, and separates us from God and others. But just like the priest could declare him clean from leprosy, so David knew that God could declare him clean from his sin. And so he prays, Purge me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. That's God's promise to you in this verse. No one is out of the reach of God's grace. Even David, who sinned against Bathsheba and literally had people killed to try to cover it up, even David could be declared clean so can you. And here's how. One of the things that we learn about the laws from leprosy is that to be declared clean requires death and blood. A bird had to die in order for the healed person to be declared clean. And we see the same thing in David's life too. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, you might remember that God takes the life of the son that he had with Bathsheba. David's son dies because of his sin. But that death was a foreshadowing of another son of David. One thousand years later, God would send his only son of the line of David to die for our sin. When we sin against God, we deserve to be isolated from his presence and to die in our sin. But because Jesus took our place, because he was forsaken by God and shed his blood for us, we can be declared clean and reunited with him. David prayed these words in faith that one day God would send his Messiah to deal with his sin in a way that a sacrificial bird never could. And we now can pray these words in faith looking back on that Messiah whose blood makes us clean. And because of that, no matter what you've done, 
if you confess and repent of your sin, you will be declared clean. Maybe God is putting something on your heart right now. Confess that to him. And let yourself feel the deep relief of his forgiveness and acceptance. Purge me with the hyssop and I shall be clean. And as incredible as that is, there's more. Look at what else David requests in verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Not only does God cleanse us from all our sin, he also gives us a clean heart. Like a leper healed completely of his disease, so God's grace extends to the very root of the problem. He cleanses our sinful hearts. He sends his Holy Spirit to live within us and to transform our hearts so that more and more, instead of desiring sin, we desire and delight to obey God. He does what only God can do. He creates in us a new, clean heart. And so here we see the first part of the main point of the psalm. The first part is that God restores sinners. He forgives our sin and gives us a new, clean heart. And now before we go on to the next section, let me just quickly explain verse 11, because it can be kind of confusing. Look at what David prays. He says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So what does that mean? Does that mean that if we sin against God, we're in danger of him taking his spirit from us? David probably has in mind here how the Lord did take his spirit from Saul, the king of Israel before David. But we know from other passages in the Bible that God never takes his spirit from those who truly repent. That wasn't the case with Saul. Read through 1 Samuel and you'll see that Saul did not repent and confess his sins like we see in this psalm. He didn't know and grieve his sin. But if you truly repent, however imperfectly, God will never take his spirit from you. But it can feel like you would, can't it? When you sin against God, yet again, it can feel like, surely this is the last straw. Surely I've reached the end of God's patience. It can feel that way because that's exactly what we deserve. This verse is God's, or is David's expression of that feeling. But what David looked forward to, and what we now can look back on, is Jesus Christ, who was forsaken by God that we may never be. And because of that, we can pray the words of this psalm with confidence that God will answer. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So here's where we're at. 
This prayer starts with a plea. Lord, have mercy. Then there's a confession. I know my transgression. And then is the request. Create in me a clean heart. And now we see the response in verses 13 through 17. God has shown us tremendous mercy. How should we respond? That's what this next section is about. Why is it that all of the news outlets picked up the story of Brandt forgiving his brother's killer? At least in part, it's because a story of such radical forgiveness begs to be told. It's so captivating that we can't help but share it with others. We see something similar in this section. When David experiences God's forgiveness and restoration, he can't keep it in. Look at verses 13 through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth would declare your praise. What would you do if you were in tremendous pain and you went to doctor after doctor? They gave you this, they gave you that. None of it helped. But then finally, one day you're able to see the specialist, best in the country, and she heals you completely. What would you do? At the very least, you'd probably recommend her to others, right? We might say that you would sing her praises. How much more do our hearts sing the praises of the one who has forgiven and restored and healed us of our most dreadful disease? That's the idea here. When David experiences the grace of God, forgiving his most heinous sins and reaching down to the very depths of the problem in his soul, he can't help but respond by praising God and declaring his goodness to others. And when we come to understand that God has done the same for us, we can't help but respond in the same way. And so here we see the second part of the main point of this psalm. The first part is that God restores sinners. The second part tells us to what end. God restores sinners to what end? To worship him. As compelling as the story of Brant forgiving Amber is, you and I have an even more compelling story. There's a reason why generation after generation, people continue to be captivated by the story of Christianity. There's no greater story of forgiveness and restoration. Like Amber and like David, our sin costs someone their life. But in our case, it's the very Son of God who willingly died for our sin. The one whom we sinned against himself died the death that we deserve, that he might restore us to himself. 
And when we come to understand just how far God has gone to restore us, the natural response is worship. The natural response is for our hearts to overflow with praise. Oh God, deliver me, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And when we come to understand all that God has done for us, we can't help but declare that good news to others, too. It's a story that begs to be told. How can you share that good news this week? And who knows, maybe like David prays, God will use you to return sinners to himself. So here's what we've seen so far. Here's how God restores sinners. Look at how far he goes. He not only forgives all our sin, he creates in us a clean heart. He goes to the very root of the problem and restores our sinful hearts. And he not only gives us a clean heart, he also opens our mouth to declare his praise. We go from mourning over our sin to rejoicing in our salvation. God restores sinners to worship him. But God not only restores us individually, that restoration then spills over into our relationships with others. As we declare to them the wonderful goodness of God, God uses that to restore sinners to himself. But even that isn't the end. We see in the final part of this prayer that God's restoration isn't complete until all his people flourish and worship him. Look at how David ends his prayer in verses 18 through 19. He says, do good to Zion. Zion here being a synecdoche for all of God's people. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. That is so they may dwell in safety from their enemies. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. That is, then will you delight in right worship. So here's what we see. Having experienced the restoration of God personally, and having declared it to God and to others, David ends his prayer with a request that God would do good to all his people, that they might worship him. That's exactly what brings us together here today. We're here today because God has restored us to himself through the death and resurrection of his son. And now we gather to respond with worship. But what we do here today is only a taste of what is to come. There's a day coming when all God's people, from every tongue, tribe, and generation, will gather together in the heavenly Jerusalem with hearts so completely transformed that will no longer even be capable of sinning. And in that heavenly Jerusalem, 
we will live in peace and security. For all that our sin has broken will be restored. There'll be no more war in Ukraine, no more hunger in Afghanistan, no more suffering, no more sadness. And together, forgiven and restored, we will worship God with pure hearts. That's the restoration in store for God's people. God restores sinners like David and like you and me that we might worship him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the forgiveness and restoration that you bring us through your Son. Help us to look to him in faith that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might create in us clean hearts to worship you. We ask that you do that not only for us, but also for all your people, people near and far. And God, direct our gaze to look forward to the day when you will finish the restoration that you have begun. And we will worship you with pure hearts. Do this for the sake of your name, we ask. Amen.